You are listening to Mike Seminary and Friends. Not long ago, I was reading in one of the local business magazines that's uh, published by a friend of mine. And I came upon this story that just grabbed my attention for a couple reasons. One, the, the person has started a, a brew pub in Hillsborough, North Dakota. And while I don't drink beer, my wife does, and the brew pub culture is absolutely, I think, in terms of a shift in entertainment, hospitality, gathering, just a home run. I just think it's a wonderful way for people to connect, have fun, enjoy good homemade local libations and whatever else the place has to offer. Maybe more importantly, he's from Valley City and has served our country. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And why would that catch my attention? I'm not talking to you right now were it not for Valley City. My dad, born in Greensburg, Pennsylvania, right outside of Pittsburgh, went into the service. He hadn't even graduated from high school. When he and his friends, I think they were on a, I don't want to call it a yacht, a big old boat with a bunch of guys going over to Korea. They were talking about what they're going to do after. And two guys, I won't mention their names, from Valley City, North Dakota, convinced my dad and two of his buddies to come to Valley City. Why? At the time, Valley City, and I think it was called State Teachers College at the time. I could be wrong. They were offering the last year of education free if you were one of the guys at 18 for 36. If you gave 18 months of service, the government was going to give you 36 months of financing for your education. And these guys said, Valley City is going to give you the last year. And there are a lot of good-looking women in Valley City. My dad came, he met my mother, and he never went back to Pennsylvania. That's why I'm here, and that's why I've, when I read the story about Ta Terry Sando and the Goose River Brewing Company, I just had to reach out to him. Terry Sando, welcome to Mike's Seminary and Friends. It's great to see you. Thank you for taking time to join me. How are you today? Oh, great, Mike, and I appreciate the uh, chance to take and, uh, you know, kind of visit with you and uh, let your uh, viewers and listeners uh, know uh, some of the things that we're doing up here in Hillsboro with the uh, Goose River Brewing uh, and some of those things and be happy to take and touch uh, uh, some of the uh, adventures I had in the military. So it sounds like your dad during the Korean War era, you know, a lot still happening over there today. Uh, you know, open source uh, intel says that uh, Kim Jong-un is uh, – flexing his muscles with the nuclear uh, situation over there and this satellite, uh, you know, capability that he launched also off of an ICBM. Uh, so it's uh, becoming another hot spot. Uh, it's been from the Korean War era all the way up to the Pueblo incident, uh, all the way to today that uh, some of the exercises and stuff that we run over there and support uh, is always kind of a critical area. And uh, unfortunately, it's just one of many around the world right now that we have to take and keep a pulse on. And uh, with the Ukraine and uh, Israel, also with uh, 
Iran, uh, you know, in the Middle East, the Houthis there in the Red Sea, uh, launching uh, drones and and some of those things have a lot of experience with uh, unmanned systems. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's one of those areas that uh, we want to take and uh, maintain it. And uh, I'd like to just say a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to all our young men and women around the world right now that are out there. Uh, the pointy end of the spear right now that are protecting us here at home and uh, in difficult times. So, uh, again, uh, it's uh, one of those times of the year when you kind of reminisce with some of the people that you worked with that uh, or served with uh, that uh, uh, were killed in action. Now, thank you for thank you for sharing that, Terry. It, it is um, a unique time in our history right now. And if it were not for people like yourself, my father, others that I know, all those currently serving. And, you know, most of them do it because they love our country, love our way of life. And there are other reasons, too. If, for example, like you, pursuing an education, we'll get to that. Were it not for them, we're not having this conversation. And that's what makes this country so incredible. That's why so many people want to get here. The, the, the places you just mentioned, no one's trying to go there, but they sure are trying to come here. So thank you, Terry, for what you did. So you you grew up in Valley City, wonderful community, uh, city of bridges. I mean, folks, if you haven't been to Valley City recently, you, you need to go there. It is one of the most picturesque communities uh, in the country. And then you have this byway system below there, the scenic byway that's just, you know, really kind of starts as Valley City is so remarkable. You grew up there, you went to high school, and you made the decision to pursue an opportunity career in the military, primarily to finance your education. Walk us through a little bit about how that decision came about and then kind of your, your journey. You had, had a fascinating journey. And again, thank you for serving our country, Terry. How did that all take place for you? Well, I found it interesting uh, you talking, Mike, about your dad going to uh, Valley City State College now or university. Um, and then it was the, uh, uh, you know, basically the the, the main way that uh, a lot of our teachers here in North Dakota got educated. I actually went to grade school back when they had the grade school at the college as part of their ability to be able to take and do the curriculum. So I went there for a couple of grades and then uh, ended up uh, uh, transferring out to uh, Lincoln and uh, basically finishing my elementary there and then off to uh, junior high and high school at, at Valley City. So it's kind of neat to uh, be able to hit those touchstones that we can take and kind of reminisce back about is pretty interesting. But uh, yeah, it was a great place to grow up. Uh, and you're right, it, it, it's really a scenic area uh, all the way up to Ashtabula and some of those things. And in the summertime with all those trees being green and the rolling hills around it uh, is really beautiful. My grandparents had a farm out uh, between uh, Sanborn and Rogers. So I spent a lot of time in the summers helping uh, on the farm. Uh, and uh, it's changed a lot. Valley City's changed a lot since uh, we I graduated in 73 and I left and uh, and, and went in. But um, I kind of was uh, had a, a couple of uncles that were in the service, uh, one in the Marine Corps, one in the Army. I was interested in flying early on in, in um, my high school days and took uh, some courses and actually took uh, some flight lessons up at uh, Heck. Uh, up at uh, Valley City Municipal, I should say. And uh, so it was fun there, kind of intrigued me. Uh, so that kind of led to the military decision that I made kind of early on, that it was something I was always going to do. Uh, it just uh, made a difference about uh, if I was going to be the officer and be a pilot or 
how I was going to go through. So I uh, ended up going to, to college for a couple of years and then uh, went to the Air Force basically to take and finish out so that I could get the tuition assistance and uh, and work that way. So my initial uh, uh, assignment was at Nellis Air Force Base at the uh, 474th. It's not a fighter wing any longer. It was one of the ones that was retired. But uh, this was during the Carter administration. And uh, again, all, a lot of your listeners will remember the Iranian situation at that time when the hostages were taken at the embassy. We had a lot of contractors that were working over there for the uh, Iranian military to be able to take care of their aircraft and some of their military equipment. And uh, and I didn't know it at the time, but our wing was actually activated. We sent uh, a squadron over as we were taking and doing the uh, getting ready to take and try to do the uh, raid in and take the hostages out. So our F-4s went to uh, uh, Turkey. I wasn't a part of that package, but uh, we were prepping up there. And then uh, we actually had some of the uh, helicopters uh, from the special operations community that uh, ended up at Nellis flying up on the range to do the practice for the uh, the refuelings and things that they did. Unfortunately, the uh, the helicopter uh, and the C-130 as we were refueling uh, had a problem. Uh, another issue was is that we used uh, Jolly Greens, basically Air Force models versus the Marine models that flew off the carrier at the time. We had uh, dust uh, kind of screens in front of our engines uh, because of the desert environment that we were flying in at the time. So they did the practice, but the Marines didn't uh, have that special screen. And if you remember correctly, on the in ingress into that uh, refueling spot, they actually uh, – uh, had a dust storm that they flew through. We lost a couple of the helicopters that had to turn around and go back. Uh, then they got to the uh, the site. And again, uh, during that uh, refueling operation, unfortunately, we lost some of our special ops folks and uh, a helicopter and C-130 there. So uh, KC-130, actually. So that was kind of a, one of the time frames there. Uh, we uh, had a chance to do a lot of, <clears throat> a lot of red flag operations <clears throat> when I was there. Uh, the F-4 was kind of the backbone as we were transitioning to the F-16 and the F-15 at the time back in the 90s there. We were getting more and more of them. So uh, uh, I was able to uh, work uh, basically with some of the uh, range operations and things. We'll just say that. Uh, uh, so we had a lot of um, of uh, former Soviet Union equipment, we'll say, that uh, we had picked up and then we had used it up on the range for actual target practice as well as uh, some of the aircraft that they had acquired uh, that we used as true aggressors instead of just the, uh, we, at the time we had some uh, F-5s that we used as aggressors and then eventually went up to the F-16 as the aggressor force. And now we actually contracted it out. The Air Force has contracted it out a lot of it. So we still have aggressors, but a lot of that is flown by by uh, uh, contractor force. Uh, from there, I ended up uh, cross-training. Uh, I became a gunner on the B-52 back when the, it was a real airplane and it had guns. Uh, and uh, so then I was uh, pulling nuclear alert uh, basically up at uh, Grand Forks uh, as my last enlisted assignment. So I was enlisted for about five and a half years and uh, then had the opportunity to go down to Fargo to the Happy Hooligans, the 119th fighter, fighter, uh, fighter interceptor group at that time, fighter wing, I guess, later on and uh, was picked up to do the intelligence, uh, kind of brought the full-time intelligence position up and got it going, did a couple of different assignments uh, in the wing, uh, intelligence twice, uh, did security forces, did supply, and then uh, did some of the, the logistic planning and different things like that. So I had an opportunity to really career broaden uh, Mike Haugen, uh General Haugen at, at uh, you know, he was kind of my mentor and uh, 
and, and the wing commander at the time. And uh, we were looking at trying to uh, get into some of the space uh, operations there. So he was looking for someone and uh, to be able to go down and uh, get into Air Force Space Command and and work uh, through some of the issues to be able to take and do it. The ultimate goal there was is we ended up by getting the 219th, the security forces up there at uh, Minot Air Force Base with the 91st and the 5th Bomb Wing, but mostly with the 91st. And it was kind of unique because there were some issues that we had to work through. So me being down at Peterson Air Force Base at the time, uh, basically I started out at the 21st Space Wing uh, as the uh, Air Guard Advisor, the first one they ever had. Largest wing in the Air Force at the time when I went there in 1998. Uh, that included all the ground radar systems for missile warning, uh, our space-based uh, uh, infrared and different detection capabilities that we had up there. Uh, without getting into classified, some of those types of operations that we had, the paid pause on either one of the uh, coast, uh, uh, basically to look for SLBM launches from the uh, former Soviet Union at that time, and uh, some of the uh, other assets that we had that we uh, utilized. So really a, a, an interesting part, but uh, uh, going back to the 219th, there were special things that you had to do whenever you're working with a nuclear system or a weapon, you have to have what we call personnel reliability program, PRP, and so there was a concern about our, our you know, part-time uh, 219th personnel being able to maintain that uh, PRP uh, uh, status. And, and we worked that through. We got uh, Air Force Base Command uh, and some of those uh, to take and buy off on it. And we had a small cadre of uh, Air Guardsmen that uh, basically went to Air Force Base Command. Very uh, influential. Uh, Tom Beersba, who just died here recently, was kind of the lead team there. And uh, he was a whistle, former whistle uh, at Fargo, and had went on uh, back on active duty uh, a number of years. But uh, he and General Jane were the ones that uh, actually uh, uh, interviewed and uh, picked me up to take and go down. So we uh, had a good relationship there. We worked a number of different issues. And it's kind of interesting now, Mike, to see that uh, the same uh, Space Force Guard, Space Force issues are kind of popping up like we had back in those days. Um, and there was a, a couple of very important missions that I won't be able to talk about that had migrated to the Air National Guard. And now it's kind of they're in limbo, basically, because the, they haven't picked up. The Space Force hasn't picked up uh, those types of missions for the Guard yet. So we're still trying to use our leverage with Congress to say, hey, this is a no brainer to be able to do it. Uh, so from there, uh, I was there when 9-11 happened. Uh, I was actually uh, in charge because uh, Colonel Lentz, who was uh, over in Europe at the time, she was on her way back uh, and got stuck up in Canada. So when we pulled the battle staff together, I remember that morning uh, pretty clearly that uh, I heard about when I was home getting ready to go to work that day, I heard about uh, the first tower being hit by a, an aircraft. And my first thought was, is that uh, is this uh, weather related like uh, back in 19... 46 or 7, we had a B-25 that hit the Empire State Building, but it was a very foggy day and their navigation system got goofed up a little bit. So they actually impacted And uh, I started to wonder about what the weather was like. So I was driving down to Peterson at the time uh, to go to work at Air Force Space Command. And the second aircraft basically hit uh, right when I was getting to work. And uh, so we pulled up the battle staff at the Air Force Space Command right away. And so there was issues, Mike, uh, you know, there's when you're a guardsman, you're usually working for the governor in a Title 32 status. Uh, some of us on active duty then went to the Title 10 or our, when we had the air defense mission, our pilots, when they sat alert, 
they had what they called a pocket Title X where they would pop up. And anything that has to do with the kill chain where you have to make those decisions, you have to be in a Title X status working for the president as the commander in chief and not the governor. So uh, uh, we were making decisions then. You probably remember we we scrambled up a lot of our fighters and stuff. Uh, Fort Carson sent over some of their Abrams tanks uh, to sit at our our base. We uh, closed everything off. All the gates and stuff were closed. I was fortunate enough to be uh, at uh, at work when we when the second one hit before they closed everything down, and uh, it set off a number of different operations. And like I say, those were all uh, worked. You probably remember that uh, President Bush at the time was in Florida. Went to Barksdale that had, uh, again, some of the uh, communications capabilities to augment uh, Air Force One, uh, was then escorted basically up to Offutt, where, again, uh, the command post there is pretty robust and has all the different levels of uh, uh, types of war capabilities that you can take and reach out and touch. Uh, and so that kind of was where I was at uh, after 9-11, we, uh, you know, were really busy on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, keeping the country safe. And uh, going back and again, when uh, the FAA closed down the airspace, it was a really interesting, uh, kind of a big uh, decision. Uh, and uh, so we uh, had our fighters and stuff uh, sanitizing some of the airspaces and some of the uh, VFR pilots in, in some of the outlying regions uh, basically taken off without looking at the NOTAMs and stuff. And all of a sudden, had an F-16 or an F-15 sitting off of their uh, wing. is <laughs> was kind of an interesting time. But uh, we went back once I got over to NORTHCOM and uh, helped set uh, some of the things up. We did a an after-action review. The 9-11 report was an important part of it. But we also looked at what we could have done militarily more efficiently. And uh, an example was is that, you know, our strategy at that time when people – uh, did a hijacking. You figured they were going to take it to Cuba like in the old days and land it and ask for some sort of a, a ransom or something like that. So using an airliner as uh, as a weapon was fairly new. We had uh, NORAD had talked about trying to do a couple of those exercises, uh, but they thought that that was going to be too politically uh, volatile at that particular time. After 9-11, we uh, came up with those types of exercises and really started to work it. But uh, NORTHCOM standup was uh, basically uh, an interesting time. We uh, took and we look at everything from uh, a threat uh, uh, by a hostile nation to the United States, all the way to the uh, emergency management uh, issues you have with a natural disaster and those types of things. Wrap that package together and did the planning for all those types of things. And again, we tied it to the NORAD command center, which was what, uh, up at Cheyenne Mountain as we matured NORTHCOM to be able to take and uh, uh, do that. And a lot of that was because of the connectivity. There's a really some neat, robust uh, capabilities within the mountain itself now that uh, are kind of migrated to, to building two. We keep uh, Cheyenne Mountain in a kind of a warm status. I shouldn't say we all the time previously <laughs> in my previous career. And so that was an interesting one. But uh, a part of what uh, I did when I got there was is that the NORAD uh, critical infrastructure database was fairly minimal uh, compared to what we had across the whole nation. So I started to think like a terrorist and I got some open source uh, information. Uh, believe it or not, uh, uh, the, the uh, FAMCAMP uh, maps and different things that you can get in the BX about what you have facilities on a base and stuff. I took those and I started to load those into an, an Encarta, a Microsoft uh, uh, program back in those days. So now we had a more robust, if we had a threat in a certain area, 
we could pull that Encarta up and take a look at it. I had a Canadian air operations officer that uh, worked with me. And then I also had the FAA sitting off to the right of me so that we could take and have instantaneous. If we needed to run a tail number and find out what was up with it or maybe have access to the manifest and stuff, we were able to take and do those in, uh, I wouldn't say real time, but near real time types of operations. And so anytime that there is a, a missile or some sort of a strategic rocket or uh, I can't get down to how small we are, but anytime there's an infrared indication of a, a, a launch of some sort around the world, that was the main spot, the focus where that initial warning came into. And we did uh, the actual uh, assessment on it. And that's where we would take and relay that up through the uh, chain of command all the way to the uh, Pentagon. Uh, I was on with uh, Rumsfeld one day and uh, we were doing an exercise and uh, uh, he uh, chewed us out for in the Air Force, we use what we call a bullseye, and we're always doing our bearings and our our uh, types of altitudes and different things off that bullseye. And uh, so he chewed us out because we were doing an exercise over the uh, Washington, D.C. Air Defense Identification Zone, the is. And uh, so he said after the exercise was over, you got to tell me landmarks because your bullseye doesn't make any sense to me. And we went, wow, that was a no-brainer. So, but he, he was pretty, he, he was a Navy pilot at one time. So you can imagine he was pretty uh, robust in his, uh, in his feedback to us. So, uh, so those were the types of things that we learned. And uh, the one main takeaway for me that really helped me uh, in my later uh, career was, is that uh, to be slow to anger, uh, basically you don't want to make a rash decision off the cuff decision that could impact uh, you know, the, some sort of a, a, a catastrophic loss when it didn't need to take place. And so those exercises and things that we refined that new database and, and we ran those exercises on every swing shift that we had and some day shifts where we'd take and bring in uh, Learjets, different things like that, that would act as hostiles for us to be able to take and, and do it. And that continues today. A part of that, uh, what what we called it back then, and I think they still call it, is Noble Eagle. So if you have a Noble Eagle patch, you go way back to when uh, we started doing all these things to recover after 9-11. Uh, from there, uh, I was selected uh, to basically go out and uh, I started in the J-7 at the National Guard Bureau and uh, then became the J-8. So J-8 is the uh, kind of the resources. So at that time, we had about $17 billion for the uh, both the Air and the Army National Guard. And so I oversaw that uh, pot of money uh, for the chief of the National Guard Bureau and uh, uh, basically ran that. We also did uh, refinements, uh, uh, took plans and things. So we were able to take and work, for example, four different initiatives where we had uh, response capabilities, uh, uh, civil support teams, and, and uh, you know, some of those joint force uh, take, uh, task forces and things that we put together that we were able to go through and change uh, the DOD budgeting process so that they would include it. We uh, called it breaking glass because you have to have a pay for. And so we would look and try to take and make those initiatives. And fortunately, during my time there, uh, basically, uh, was able to take and get four of those pushed through. And, and uh, it's about a 12 to 18 month process, but uh, those were critical needs that we needed for weapons of mass destruction at the time and being able to have a counter to that. And our civil support team out in Bismarck is a, a component there that uh, was part of what we come up with and being able to get them the equipment and things that they need. And it's really neat to see how they've 
been able to take and help the state of North Dakota, for example, in some of their exercises at the, at the University of North Dakota, some of the, uh, the population centers where you have a large crowd where they come in and do exercises. From uh, there, I was selected to go to the Air War College, uh, uh, a very neat year there at uh, Montgomery at uh, Maxwell Air Force Base. And uh, I was able to get my what I call the joint uh, requirements and things like that taken care of for my resume and ended up going to Tyndall Air Force Base uh, to be the J-5-8 at that time. So I did plans and resources down there as uh, before I retired and uh, basically came back to North Dakota. Long drawn out history, but uh, it was a, a fun ride. Oh, thank you for sharing the detail. I really appreciate that, Terry, because it, it started some wheels spinning for me, and we won't go into too much of that because we, we want to talk about some other things. <clears throat> But so you're you became an intelligence officer. So you were used to a lot of strategic discussions, a lot of intelligence gathering, exposed to the state of the art technology of of the day. In fact, <laughs> just a side note: when you were in Cheyenne Mountain, uh, for folks that that might sound familiar to you. The movie War Games, I think it was 1983. That's that's where that was theoretically um, uh, part of the movie. And if you remember in the movie, they talk about North Dakota if in the event that there was a nuclear threat. I could go on and on and on, but <clears throat> yeah, they were also... talking to a young uh, a young airman at Grand Forks Air Force Base, if I remember correctly, about. Uh... The simulation of the ICBM laydown, and uh, he kept talking to him, and he, you know, and that's exactly it's it's pretty reminiscent of what we had um, as far as being able to detect. The one thing that uh, they didn't talk about was is that uh, an important component when we do uh, missile warning is what we call dual phenomenology. So we can take and see the second that you get that burst of uh, infrared energy with our sensor systems in space. But we will take and do kind of a timeline of when the potential impact could come. But we have, on three, uh, for example, up at uh, Thule in Greenland, a huge radar system. It's a base array similar to what we have at Cavalier. And that's part of that missile warning system also. And so we would not make a decision or give a recommendation until that dual phenomenology where they would fly into that radar fan uh, basically, then we knew it was for sure, uh, uh, you know, potential threat to the United States. So that was kind of a cool process that we went through to make sure that we didn't make any mistakes. Because in the past, that was the one thing that was very difficult for NORAD Northcom. We couldn't take those space assets and put them into exercise mode. They had to stay in real world mode all the time. And so if you ran an exercise and you simulated that, and you loaded it into the system, sometimes it would creep out. And you, if you didn't have a fail safe like that dual phenomenology, but we actually have in the past launched bombers inadvertently because we didn't wait for that dual phenomenology. So, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so again, a learning experience to make sure that uh, everything's taken care of. Now the Russians, on the other hand, or the former Soviet Union, they have more of a launch undetect capability, which is a kind of a scary proposition. It is, especially especially with the guy that's running the country right now. And that's a whole other story for another time. By the way, the general and his wife sit right next to my wife and I 
at Bison football home games. Gone now for the winter, but when we sit next to each other again this coming football season, I'll I'll greet him for you, by the way. And I appreciate that. You're from Sanborn. That's where my mother's family and my grandfather's family was from. Sauer and Sautner. That's that that's where their roots are. Yeah, there was Sanborn. a sour that was in my class uh, from down south of Sanborn there. I yep. Probably related somehow. I bet. So now let's use that again. Intelligence officer, um, a, a lot of strategic thinking, specialized in avionics, had ex experience with uh, nuclear weapons, B-52 gunner. Eventually became a mayor. We'll talk about that maybe in a minute. Where in the world? From that background, did you say, I'm going to start a brew pub in Hillsborough, North Dakota? Because it just seems like you could have taken this incredible background, uh, and especially as articulate as you are, gone into the private sector and done consulting or whatever it was. But you decided to take a different route. How, how did that happen? And yeah, I, I got to admit, Mike, that uh, there's days recently that, you know, it would be nice to go back into that community and, uh, you know, uh, being familiar with some of the things that we're encountering right now and, and try to make a contribution, uh, you know, back in, especially since the Space Force has stood up. And, uh, you know, there's a requirement for quite a, a quite a little uh, civilian or contractor type of background there. So I see some of these things happening around the world. Uh, with Israel now in Gaza and some of the things that we do and uh, being pretty familiar with both our, our uh, unmanned systems as well as the space uh, side of the house there that uh, those types of indicators and ways that you can take and uh, make contributions uh, <clears throat> I think are kind of uh, in short supply right now for the United States that uh, there's a need to grow quickly and you probably can relate that we're seeing a, a downtick in our recruiting you know with uh the Army, well, all the services, basically, and even the Air Guard last year, which has been kind of a, easy that you always had excess personnel that you could pull in. You know, last year, the Air Guard actually struggled making its recruiting goals. So, and again, I think uh, the Army has been down since 2020 by about 8%. Marine Corps, about 4.5%, 5%. Navy has been the best of all of them, but even the Air Force. Uh, but that downsizing has caused a critical uh, issue with being able to take uh, some of the mission sets and keep them viable and keep that expertise because you're constantly rotating in and rotating out. So uh, sometimes the contractors or civilian force or that continuity that you have to rely on. Uh, that being said, um, we decided to come back to uh, North Dakota after retirement in 09. And uh, we had a house in Grand Forks, basically, that my son was living in uh, as he was going through the aviation program at the uh, University of North Dakota. And uh, we have family, you know, uh, uh, my wife, Deb's uh, parents are, you know, up in the 90s and uh, my stepdad is up in the 90s. And and so, you know, we felt that it was important to come back and kind of support the family, be a, a support structure there. And uh, so I ended up uh, working for the University of North Dakota, working on their emergency management plan for about 18 months, getting it set up and doing some exercises and things there. Went back to school, but uh, I went to work. Uh, there was a need at the Grand Forks Region EDC 
for uh, an unmanned and military type of background uh, person to take and lead the charge there, you know, with Grand Sky and all the things happening up there, which was really weird because it's on the old alert pad where I used to pull alert. And so those red lines were still a little, pretty faded, but they're still out there. It was hard for me to cross them. But uh, so I was uh, went to work for them and uh, and then uh, ended up working for a Norwegian company for a while. Uh, coming down to Hillsboro, the reason we, we sold our house in Grand Forks, built a new house here in Hillsboro simply because my wife was working for the FCS at the time here, and it was easier. I didn't have a, a really, really rigid schedule like she had, so just figured it would be easier for her to take and uh, be able to commute to the west side of Hillsboro versus driving down every day from Grand Forks. And then uh, things kind of snowballed from there. Like I say, I worked for the Norwegian company. We did a lot of traveling. Uh, it was also with the EDC that uh, we went to Europe quite a little to work on some of the air shows and stuff to sell the region as a place to come. And one of the highlights of my career uh, in the EDC there was is that uh, uh, we brought the Hermes 450 to the Hillsborough Airport. Uh, that's the uh, Elbit system uh, out of Israel. We did a lot of uh, experimentation uh, and, and John Nowatsky and the folks there at NDSU set up some uh, tests. The state of North Dakota supported that. We uh, flew that uh, that bird a couple of times. We had to have a chase plane for it at the time. Things have migrated now. The Northern Plains uh, test site and some of those have made tremendous in, inroads to basically, you know, build out the uh, UAS infrastructure here in North Dakota. And North Dakota has been really supportive, supported by uh, the senators and, and con congressmen, uh, basically, uh, to be able to take and get that up and going. So uh, it's neat to see. But we were able to take and fly that Hermes 450 scan at a, a, approximately 8,000 feet, about 50,000 acres an hour. And so one of the learning experiences there is the data, we collected so much data that to be able to relay that and get that into what we call a prescription for the farmer the next day, uh, 11 terabytes was too much data to be able to take and sift through. So you had to take and get that data processing up and going. We also worked with Excel. So, uh, uh, to be able to take and do a, a, a tornado scenario, basically, we took uh, I took the Northwood uh, tornado, basically moved it to Mayville, and then we had that um, you know so that the Hermes could take and queue off small UASs and get it to the first responders there. So that was a a really interesting exercise too. So again, I wish it would uh, be at the point that we are now because I think we would be able to take and have those medium altitude uh, uh, systems up and uh, providing a lot more support for, you know, agriculture as well as some of the first responders. Uh, we used them in the military, but again, in a unique capability. Uh, Fargo's done an awesome job down there, the Happy Gooligans, the 119th, uh, and uh, being able to take and get those uh, predators and reapers up. Uh, uh, it's neat to see that we have a, a restricted area for lazing where we can actually do the full uh, mission sets basically up at uh, to Camp Grafton there and, and some of those things. And it's all about integration there. So I found that fairly interesting. Then it got to the point where uh, I ran for mayor because nobody else was running. So <laughs> it was kind of <laughs> one of those where I did that four years and uh, and then uh, got uh, didn't get reelected for the last term. But it was kind of a godsend because with the, the brew pub now, it's had me extremely busy trying to take and get that set up and, and uh, you know, looking forward. Simple things like right now that I have to think about, we're getting close to the uh, brewery being finished up here in the next couple of weeks. Um, and a couple of key muscle movements that we have to do there. But now I have to start thinking about kegs. I have to start thinking about the aluminum cans. I have to start thinking about labels for the beers that we're going to be making. Simple things like the handles for the uh, the kegs for the taps. 
you know, that I need to start getting uh, uh, produced and stuff like that. So uh, not only trying to uh, get everything financially set up and, and running, the pub is is running in front now. We're having some success there, and uh, we would, can want to continue to expand operations on that side. Uh, but uh, it's, it's a challenge right now with uh, the contractors and, uh, you know, the price. Uh, when you come down or come up, I should say, Mike, uh, I'll show you the back, uh, but uh, just the copper that I've had to put into the kettles, you know, and the price of copper going up is really it. So what we budgeted in the business planning process is uh, that went out the window when COVID hit. And uh, so it changed uh, dramatically that and uh, the staffing issues. It's hard to find people to come in. And uh, and uh, even when you're paying a, a pretty good wage, it's uh, it's hard to find some of those workers to get back into the workforce right now. Yeah, that um, that supply chain issue, labor issue, um, we've never experienced anything quite like it. And then the other challenges we have, you add on to that. We can imagine there are some stressful days for you. By the way, you must have worked with Klaus Thiesen and Keith, his assistant. Yep, uh, I, I, Klaus, Klaus is a mentor, yep. Uh, he worked with them closely and... Uh, and Keith, uh, I try to stay in touch with them every once in a while. They're both outstanding individuals they, doing a great they, job with economic development up there. They sure well, Klaus are. is retired now, but yeah. he did a great job. And, and you said your wife's name is Deb? Yeah. When you when you told Deb you were thinking about starting a brewery, brew pub, bar, restaurant, all of that, what'd she say? What did, she thought what I was she... crazy. <laughs> She said, at your age, you shouldn't be starting anything. <laughs> Thank goodness our wives are brutally honest with us and very direct. So you started this just before COVID hit or as COVID was taking place? No, it was just before. So we uh, went through uh, Jim and Alyssa at the Trail County EDC have been great uh, helping us. So we did the business planning we uh, went in front of their board and, and put that out. So it goes back to 2019, actually, Mike. Uh, uh, I had worked with the Flatland folks down there at uh, on Veterans Avenue there in, in West Fargo and uh, bought their three-barrel system at that time. And we were planning on a second site coming up to Hillsboro under the Flatland uh, brewing license. And so that's kind of where I got, uh, you know, started with them. And then uh, they, unfortunately, when COVID hit, they didn't have food. Uh, the spicy pie was kind of next door, but they uh, relied strictly on their brewing and, and uh, their tap room. And so it got to be a difficult situation for them when the traffic was stopped because of COVID and the restrictions of being able to come in. And so unfortunately they, they went out of business and uh, I kind of was committed at that point. Uh, I made the initial investments. They had started building the building. Uh, originally, our plan was to have uh, this uh, brew pub out on the west side in the new Riverwalk development. But again, COVID slowed that down. So we uh, we bought uh, the, the lots with the old banner building and the old, uh, 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 I guess, plate for the, uh, the bowling alley there. We tore all that out. We built a brand new building. And that started uh, in 2020, basically. And uh, and so at that point, uh, got committed to it. And uh, we looked for a used uh, brewing system. We actually have a 15-barrel system that uh, we converted from steam to uh, direct fire since natural gas came into Hillsboro. 
And uh, it's a much more efficient, but difficult because modifying those kettles uh, and getting them set up was a little bit different. So the used system came from uh, Sparks, Nevada. It was a casino, uh, High Sierra. And uh, so we bought that equipment, had it transported back up here and, uh, you know, it got set up. Now, hindsight being perfect, perfect. I, I should have not bought another system to go bigger, but take and put the three barrel system up, get it operational. And uh, then we would have been brewing beer at, you know, a, probably 18 months ago uh, with that system. And uh, we have a small canning system that we acquired that was, we can do about 10 to 14 cans a minute to be able to take and get our, our retail space up and going. Uh, so, but once we bought that system, you know, then we were committed to be able to get it up and operational. And again, that was the contracting. I tried to stay with local contractors as much as possible, again, so that, that the, the money that we spent stayed in the community. Uh, recently, I've had to reach out to uh, uh, two firms that uh, worked with Half Brothers up in uh, the Grand Forks there uh, with Chad and uh, have uh, the plumbing and the electrical done so that I'm trying to take and use his system kind of as the uh, uh, the baseline for our system to be able to get it up and going. So those folks having worked on that it has helped out a lot. But uh, it uh, again, uh, we started the pub operations, uh, you know, started out with frozen pizzas and stuff from Green Valley. And and slowly we've moved into a, a, a nice menu now uh, in Amber. And our kitchen manager has done a great job of fleshing that out. We have uh, steak nights on Friday and Saturday. We're starting to uh, get into the, some of the prime ribs on Saturday. We, uh, we've we had steak nights pretty much so the whole time that the pub's been open on, on Friday nights. And and uh, then Saturdays we expanded into. Uh, so we're working on that uh, to be able to build up the uh, the customer uh, uh, customer base there. Uh, it's been pretty popular. Adam's our steak cook. Uh, he does a great job, really spices them up nicely, slow cooks them over the uh, the grill. And uh, they stay nice and juicy. And we have two sides. Uh, sometimes we'll run a wine special with it, uh, get a bottle of wine that goes with it. We've added desserts now, uh, but we're looking at, to expand. Uh, we had a couple nights where we had ribs uh, and that's been pretty popular. So going into the new year now, we'll take and start to flesh out and do some some new uh, menu items and things like that to take and again so that it doesn't get mundane, it doesn't get uh, old and uh, and uh, keep kind of trying to take and uh, expand the, the menu items for that. Uh, and then the baseline for it, uh, you know, kind of, Mike, what I wanted to do is, as mayor, you know, downtown Hillsboro, like a lot of our small towns, has uh, basically not been a destination for many years. And so it takes uh, a lot to keep that infrastructure or get new businesses coming in. So kind of one of the ulterior motives uh, that I kind of hatched as the mayor was, well, if we have a brew pub downtown with all these new beer applications and we start brewing our own beer, then basically those apps are kind of geolocate where you're at. And you'll get a lot of people coming off of I-29, hopefully, that will come down to the brew pub now and hopefully start to see uh, other businesses that uh, we have, uh, our cafe, uh, Sunday Brew, and some of the smaller uh, new businesses there and uh, be able to take and expand into it. So it's kind of a, one of those ulterior motives that I had to kind of the background for, yeah, let's do this, you know, kind of pull the trigger on it. I never imagined that it would be this long uh, uh, experience in some of the delays. And and COVID has definitely set uh, 
set us back, I'd say probably two years now easily. But uh, being open for about 18 months, we can kind of now see the uh, light at the end of the tunnel with the beer brewing coming up, with the brew house getting done. And uh, that's going to be, I think, a big one. So part of that marketing will be as the uh, first, I'll, I'll take and have a tapping of the keg event every first Friday once we start brewing beer. And uh, I'll put in a, a, on one of the taps a, a sixth of a barrel. And I'll ask people to take in that sample, that beer. And if they give us feedback, it'll be a free beer that night. And that'll lead right into our steak night and uh, some of those things so that we can be a little bit more predictable. But, you know, hopefully get people from outside the region that'll stop in and uh, and, and experience that uh, tapping of the keg event also. I'm looking forward to trying to get up into Canada, get the word out. Uh, you know, we have a lot of Canadian visitors. You see a lot of Manitoba plates. You know, again, the last couple of years, not so many, but we're starting to see those coming back into Grand Forks, uh, uh, Fargo, and even down into the uh, metropolitan area, Grand uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul. So if I can get some of them to stop, uh, again, uh, uh, they they have no qualms paying six bucks uh, for, a, for a beer, you know, with the prices that they have in, in Canada. So hopefully we'll be able to take and attract into that, uh, that uh, part of the uh, customer base up there, too. So... Folks, the, the website is gooseriverbrewingpub.com. I said that right? Correct. Yep. Gooseriverbrewingpub.com. And you'll be able to find more information uh, at, at that website. Terry, I got to think that, by the way, while you were mayor, did you have one of the Main Street Summit uh uh, meetings with the, the governor or some of the staff from Commerce while you were the mayor? Yes, and uh, I signed the proclamation for the Main Street Initiative and uh, sent that out, uh, coordinated it up, uh, attended one of the meetings, uh, I think it was in Bismarck, if I remember correctly. And uh, again, a great program, uh, but again, it takes a lot of, uh, it takes a lot of entrepreneurial uh, spirit to be able to take and continue that. And again, with the economy, the way it's been lately. So I'm also the president of the Hillsborough EDC. Uh, so we're looking at how we might be able to, and we put a half cent sales tax on when I, back when I was mayor to uh, promote economic development. And we finally got a, a, what I call a war chest now where we can start to help those young entrepreneurs uh, to be able to do it. We also have a lodging tax that we use to try to take and uh, promote the Hillsborough area, uh, the region, but Hillsborough specifically, and uh, try to broaden it out. But uh, again, the the Riverwalk development was a big thing that we worked on when I was mayor. Uh, we got that new development, but now with the mortgage rates and some of those things, so we've been looking at how we might potentially be able to do a spec home to uh, get one of those lots out there, uh, get our builders to build it, and then uh, basically sell it. But uh, start some of the activity at Riverwalk. We have two new homes out there. Uh, we have some commercial property that uh, uh, you know we'd like to see developed there too. So, uh, in fact, I've got two acres out there that uh, I, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to be doing with. Uh, like I said, originally we were supposed to have the brew pub out there. So we, we might have another opportunity to, to, you know, leverage the brew pub downtown with something more out there to be able to have more taps on. Uh, so we'll see what happens there in the near future. But uh, economically, and again, going into an election year, Mike, you know how difficult it's going to be, uh, you know, to figure out. But uh, next year will be critical as far as, you know, where we're going to get at. Uh, 
as far as the uh, inflation goes, uh, you know, uh, is the Fed doing the right work? Uh, you know, again, if we see the interest rates come back down, I think it is. But then on the other hand, I remember back when I was uh, stationed at Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas, it was 18% interest rates. So, you know, some of us old timers, you know, we can kind of relate to the fact that, uh, you know, and to be quite honest, you know, if we're in that 5 to 6% uh, interest rate, that's kind of pretty much so the norm, you know, historically, if you take a look at it. But being spoiled by having, you know, 3% for so long, uh, uh, I think a lot of the young people, which, you know, again, there's a lot of bills that they try to take and get paid off, too, as far as student loans and all these different issues that we have to deal with that, uh, you know, make it a tough environment there, too. But, uh, yeah, we look at uh, Hillsborough being strategically located that uh, halfway between Grand Forks and Fargo. Uh, again, we have some uh, uh, families where the parents, one works in Fargo, one works in Grand Forks. So it makes a lot of sense to be here. But uh, there was kind of a hiatus in the 80s, Mike, uh, uh, with a building for our residential area. Uh, the ag economy, if you remember back in the 80s, was a tough one. And uh, so we had that hiatus of building here. Uh, and it's kind of hitting us right now that, you know, some of these starter homes, for example, uh, they're not available until maybe we can get some new homes built out at Riverwalk and some of our older, more affluent uh, residents are able to take and move into there, opening up some of the older homes here. But uh, yeah, for the most part, I've had two homes uh, right next to us here in Hillsboro that they sold within days. One was on the, the first day. A lot of our homes don't even get listed because it's word of mouth, basically, where uh, they come in and they make an offer and it gets accepted and they run it through a, a lawyer. So uh, uh, again, the demand is there, but uh, uh, it's just not the resources or availability of it right now. So, and one of the reasons I asked you about the Main Street Initiative was what what you've done speaks to the very spirit of what the governor has talked about with regards to downtown space, walkability, um, so on and so forth. So you have your uh, uh, brew pub, Goose River Brewing Pubs, you know, kind of in the heart of downtown for all, for all practical purposes. So it, it's walkable, maybe not today for, for some folks. Uh, I, I'm a runner, so I find walkability opportunities 12 months a year uh, most people don't but that I would th I would think that the business communities particularly those merchants downtown were so appreciative of your investment your time uh, putting in something that there's another reason for people to walk around and see what uh, what's available you, before I forget you're also taking online classes in the master of science brewing operations what aren't you doing <laughs> you're well, doing every, everything Terry. yeah it's a it's a, a program that uh, auburn uh, has online and you get a master of science in uh, beer brewing and operations so you get a, a pretty good uh, exposure to it uh just finished up my first semester we will be starting my second semester here too and it's another uh uh, again, with my military service, I've been using the GI Bill basically to take and fund it. So it's getting towards the end of my eligibility. So it was kind of fortuitous that I got accepted into the program. But I wished I would have had this education, these 
you know, basically in, the instruction in, in not only the brewing, but the actual equipment itself, because, you know, it would have helped me in my business planning to understand more readily some of the things that uh, uh, I was counting on other experts to do. So getting that practical experience now through the uh, the master's program has been quite uh, enlightening. And uh, like I say, I wish I had a little bit sooner, but uh, it uh, the chemistry this last semester killed me. I'm kind of a social science kind of guy. <laughs> so uh, the, the hard sciences are, you know, learning about the sugars and, uh, you know, the enzymes and stuff like that. Uh, I, it was interesting, but again, kind of a challenge because when you start throwing out all those those uh, chemical uh, backgrounds, it's uh, it's kind of a, a challenge. But uh, yeah, beer is 95% water. And then, uh, you know, it's the uh, yeast that basically starts everything for you, gets the fermentation going and uh, turns the uh, turns it into ethanol and uh, basically CO2. So it uh, is an interesting one. Learned a lot about the hops. Uh, and again, uh, part of my marketing plan was to use some of this education that I'm getting now uh, so that when I have a beer, I'll be able to take and talk about the hops, you know, and I'm looking forward uh, the yeast, you know, is it a lager that, uh, you know, basically ferments in the bottom of the tank or is it an ale that does it? And the differences between the yeast that take and do that. But I'm really looking forward to as part of that marketing to be able to take people back into the brew house and uh, actually walk them through the process, show them and, and uh, you know, be able to see where that beer maybe taste it uh, as we have it in the bright tanks when it's settling and getting ready to take in keg and can. And uh, so that's, again, part of what I look forward to for the marketing along with that, you know, the first Friday tapping of the keg event. So, and I've had a number of people already that uh, I've walked them through. Uh, we had the community found, uh, foundation days here uh, last week on Thursday, and I took a number of people back just to show them where we're at and tell them, geez, a couple of weeks, I'm hoping that we got this thing up and going. So, and people ask a lot of questions. It's really interesting. And then uh, you got a lot of home brewers that are out there that, uh, you know, I'm always looking for a guest brewer to come in and help me out. So. How, how should the guest brewers, how should they reach you? How, what's the best way to contact you, Terry? Uh, just go ahead to Terry at gooseriverbrewing.com. Uh, my email, I get that both at home on my private email as well as uh, uh, on the website there. Uh, that would be the best one to take and do uh, is to reach out that way. There you go. If you had a magic wand, you could wave over the heads of everybody listening right now and the potential uh, folks that could come to your operation. They're maybe they're going to be driving from Fargo to Grand Forks for a hockey game, maybe. What's the one thing you want them to know about Goose River Brewing Pub? It's a great, uh, what we're trying to do is uh, the Goose River Brewing team is trying to make this the blue collar uh, beer lovers mecca in Hillsboro for people to come to. Uh, it's really important because we do have a family uh, it's family friendly as far as our environment goes. Uh, basically, we, we wanted to have that again. Uh, for example, uh, bingo. Uh, we have uh, bingo every Thursday night and the first and third uh, Sundays of the month. We did the Sundays because we want the kids to come in with their parents uh, to be able to play again uh, in a social setting where we're getting the community together. Uh, so, again, we feel very strongly that having that blue collar uh, worker as well as beer lover uh, type of an environment is important that uh, has the family basically that, you know, mom and mom and dad can come in and have a beer and the kids can have a 1919 root beer or any number of fountain pops that we have and, and those things. But to be able to enjoy 
maybe a good stake on those uh, stake nights, uh, the bingo nights for them to be able to take and play. In fact, uh, the big, uh, uh, our our winning goes up uh, at 55 blackout uh, up to $5,000. And then we start raising the number for the blackout. And it was a young man that's uh, going to junior high here that uh, actually won the $5,000 this last go around <laughs> about a month ago. And so we celebrate that. We put uh, their pictures on and uh, and get them into the uh, Facebook page uh, to be able to take and see some of those things. Uh, the other part is, is that uh, I know that there's been kind of a pent up, uh, you know, uh, want for us to be able to be brewing beer. And I just uh, ask everybody, you know, that uh, to be patient, you know, again, we're dealing with a lot of um you know, issues to be able to take and get it up. Uh, I, I truly thought that we'd be up and brewing beer 18 months ago, but you have to roll with punches on these types of operations when uh, you're working a big system like a 15 barrel and getting it set up and uh, operational. And uh, and uh, so I just would ask that people be patient. But uh, And we uh, do have a, a live event uh, for our local high school activities. So we have nine TVs basically within the pub itself. So when uh, the local high schools are playing basketball or football or those things, we try to have that live event up so that people can come in if they don't want to go to the uh, the uh, the wellness center or the heck we call it uh, for the uh, basketball games. They can sit there, enjoy a beer and watch it. Uh, the NDSU game with the uh, Grizzlies on Saturday, we had it up. Uh, people came in and watched that. So we're working on trying to get the hockey games again. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I always consider myself a fighting Sioux, but, uh, you know, the fighting Hawks, we try to take and get them. Uh, we're going to see if we can get them up on, on, on the, the screens and stuff too. Uh, but for people going back and forth between uh, those, uh, those hockey or football events, uh, you know, please stop in and uh, try to experience the, uh, the neat little uh, pub that we have in downtown Hillsboro. You open up at 11 o'clock most days. Yep. Now we've closed on Mondays. Now we found uh, starting in December here, we found that it's just too slow after the weekend. So we're closed on Mondays. Now uh, we'll probably pick that back up in the springtime when we have a little bit more activity with the farmers and stuff, but uh, yep. 11 to 10 is basically it. Uh, we will close early at night if we don't have uh, any, uh, any uh, patrons in, but, uh, and then on Sunday we close at six o'clock. Uh, we're looking at some sort of a, a New Year's Eve event that'll take us out to 10 o'clock. Uh, what the Canadians refer to as the uh, American Midnight, 10 o'clock. <laughs> so whenever we went to their parties, when we were down uh, either at uh, Peterson or at uh, Florida, I worked with a lot of Canadians uh, in my NORAD, uh, with my NORAD experience. And uh, we they always teased us about going home at 10 o'clock, uh, the American Midnight, they called it. So, yeah. <laughs> well, Terry, this has just been delightful. I'm 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 so happy for you. And by the way, I I have a real warm spot in in my heart for entrepreneurs, um, and, and you're the epitome of the risk taking entrepreneur that makes life more enjoyable, more pleasurable for all of us. And by the way, that started with the most important entrepreneurs of all. You came from a family farm. And if we if we don't have family farms, um, we're not eating. We're not finding anything to eat in a supermarket. And then you took that to a whole new level after your 30-plus years of serving our country. Again, thank you so much, Terry. And I, I just envision, is that because I have listened to you today, uh, very strategic thinker, 
uh, kind of art of the long view in terms of vision. You have all this background in economic development, working with Klaus and Keith and some other wonderful people. I can just see that in time you'll you'll be plugging and playing. You'll you'll have in addition to bingo, you'll have some local art instructor that will take two or three hours on a Sunday afternoon and people that want to learn how to paint or watercolor, boom, you'll do that. You'll have local musicians, kids that are in high school having some type of a battle of the bands or whatever you're, you're going to call it. I just, in time, because there's no give up in you, you, you're going to do incredible things. And Deb will finally say, I guess you weren't that crazy. That was a pretty good idea. <laughs> And uh, it will be the de destination place that, you, that you're envisioning for not just your family, but for the community and travelers. What, what's the last things we should know about you and Goose River Brewing Pub, Terry? Well, one of the things that I want to kind of close in is, uh, Mike, is, is that um, you're, you're talking about family farms. And um, one of the things that we're doing here, too, well, two things, actually. Uh, so Roar Malting has an elevator just north of uh, Hillsboro here. So we have a lot of local uh, malt barley growers, uh, a lot of two-row and some six-row uh, barley. So I'm working closely with them, uh, basically, because our local farmers, if I can take and get that malt from uh, BSG as their their marketing firm out of Shakopee that they uh, will take and buy our, our malt and yeast and some of the hops and stuff from. So great marketing. They have Canadian uh, facilities as well as other facilities around the United States. But uh, I want our local farmers to know that, uh, you know, we're working on trying to get their barley into our beer, or it might be wheat, depending upon a, if it's a... a of bison or, or some of the wheat beers that we want. But uh, so that's important. The other part is, is our spent grain. Uh, I have a young lady uh, next door at the courthouse that has cattle. So I, I've, I'm basically going to give her our spent grain after we've gotten the uh, the wort out, the sweet wort to take and process. We have probably up to about 1,500 pounds of uh, wet spent grain, we call it. And so she's going to put that in her cattle ration and Hopefully, maybe in the future sometime, we might be able to get some of her beef uh, to come into the pub that we can use for steaks or burgers or things like that. So you're exactly right that if you can look at this holistically and uh, try to work uh, everything around and and be a part of that community. And I find that the younger generation, especially, they want to know where their their food and their 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 alcohol, uh, the different things that they consume comes from. So, again, having that local flavor we hope that uh, the Goose River Brewing team is going to take and be able to tap into that. Oh, I, I love that you're taking farm to table to a whole new level at Goose River Brewing Pub. Terry, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking time. Uh, you just gave me an hour. And for any entrepreneur, an hour a day is a big, big deal. I, I appreciate it so much. I'm looking forward to meeting you in, in person just with the holidays and other things that have been going on, I, I couldn't get up there before our recording today. But I'm looking forward to meeting you. I'll, I'll ping you in advance, and it'll be a pleasure to meet you face-to-face, -face, Terry. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, you bet, Mike. Thank you so much, and I uh, appreciate having a podcast, being able to talk about Goose River Brewing. It's a, it's a pleasure, and uh, I really appreciate it. So you have a very Merry Christmas and a great New Year. You too. Thank you so much, Terry. Take care. You bet. Bye-bye.